everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight, this is episode 37. The date is June 21st, 2019, and we will be covering the top five horror B-movies in 1985. Frank, this is our sixth of this list so far, yep. right? Yeah. Oh, I'm getting confused on the dates again. <clears throat> so yeah, so this is six. So we only have four months to go, but um, I think we're finally getting into... Movies you enjoy? Somewhat. Or at least don't hate as much. Right. I think this... I, I can't remember last month. I, I think this is the first time we've got the 3-2 ratio, at least, of movies that I actually enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I think four of these movies I enjoy um, <clears throat> out of this list. and But I, it's the first time I think we've crossed that 3-2 ratio. So, yeah. I mean, I, I like most of these movies. Um, before we actually get to your list, though... This is the first year that, like, um, I think there's just tons of horror movies that could be on this list, probably. Yeah, it's pretty stacked. So, here. one of the things I wanted to do is um, go through that list with you. Okay. Second, because it's been a couple of months since we've done this, now that we're, like, in the middle of the decade, do you see any themes or what do you think, or trends or anything like that? What do you think is going on in horror by the time we get to the mid-80s? Do you see anything particular? Well, I mean, so several of the directors that made movies on this list are pretty established horror directors at this point. And I think a lot of these movies are part homage, part like parody of previous movies or mm-hmm. taking ideas that have previously existed in the horror genre and like <clears throat> having different approaches to them, taking different angles. Um, I don't know. There's a lot more competency, I think in they're not horror movies. Aren't just being made as like cheap, like quickie, you know, like 80 minute things that they slap together and put out just to make some money. Um, there's definitely like in, I, I would say in all these movies, I know that you argue maybe a couple, but like some artistry in all of them, I think. And I think that's true for some stuff that didn't make the list as well. Um, and also around this time, you're starting to get a lot more mainstream release horror movies, which really hadn't happened since, I mean, honestly, since like the 70s, like with The Exorcist and whatnot. But, um, you know, these there's horror movies that are made that are released to like wide release in theaters as opposed to just being like grindhouse movies or like second features or B features or, you know, and to back up your point on that, this is the first time we've done with with the the horror B movies that we have out of four out of these five mainstream big newspaper critics are writing on these movies. Like almost every single one I researched except for one had, Washington Post, New York Times, yeah. all the Chicago papers had reviews of a lot of these movies. So you're definitely seeing those people starting to, whether they want to pay attention or not, because it's like, it feels like Siskel, like always just hates every single horror right. movie that comes out most of the time. But um, even if they don't want to, it feels like they're, they feel the need to be watching these movies now. I mean, the thing is, though, is that you're just from a historical perspective, you're kind of like almost on the cusp of the downslide of horror movies. Um, Because there really is like a, 
and like a dead zone almost like a barren period between like the late 80s and the mid 90s of horror where everything was just straight to video and not not that there's not good stuff that came out then but right they're definitely for whatever reason like they stop being as profitable i guess and maybe that's more the rise of the multiplex and less like the death of like the the single screen like concrete bunker movie theater um and the rise of home video where it's much cheaper just to make a movie that you put straight to video as opposed to having to distribute it and you know process the film and whatnot i feel like we've talked about this at some point before but what um what year did you get a vcr 83 maybe yeah and i was 86 so so we, we, we rented vcrs until 86 it, so. it was 84 so we we moved from baltimore to cecil county in 83 mm-hmm. the summer of 83 because it was the year before i the summer before i went into elementary school and we had a vcr that following winter I think my dad was always really on the cusp of like any technology. Like we always had like everything like early on, he was an early adopter of like a lot of different like technologies, like computers and right. Stereo systems and whatnot. So we, we, we had a VCR pretty early, but I do remember going to, it wasn't universal video. It was a video store that's on, um, that was on bridge street in that building. That's like a propane dealership now. Yes. Um, and renting a VCR from there, mm-hmm. like the first fall that we were up here living in Northeast. Yeah. So, and they bought one, I think that Christmas that was like one, one of the movies from 85. That's not on your list though, is one of the movies that I first remember actually renting. Yeah. Um, while we rented a VCR when I was a child, yeah. we rented, um, I actually have a really distinct memory of this. <clears throat> so we rented, my parents rented rhinestone cowboy. And then we rented Grease, mm-hmm. and then I rented a Gumby, like compilation thing. Yeah, I remember the the first the first one I actually remember is running Cat's Eye, which was from this year. Yeah, and Starman. My parents rented Starman and wanted to watch it with uh, that's Jeff Bridges, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we rented Starman pretty <clears throat> early on too. Actually, I remember renting um Last Starfighter pretty early. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And Enemy Mine was what eighty six, I think. I think that's right. Yeah. I think we had, yeah, we definitely had a VCR by then. I mean, that um, was the thing where you would Friday night, you know, like my dad would get yeah. home from work and we would go out and typically like get something mm. to eat, right. like from like Frank's Pizza or whatever. Sure. And then we'd go to Universal Video, which was the video store in Northeast Plaza. Frank's have been there that long? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Frank's. Like, nobody cares there. about our local shit. Right. It's like, yeah. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> we would go to that, that video store, Universal Video, which was just like, it was in a strip mall and it was just right. like a. I don't know, like one of those single wide storefronts um, and we would run our videos from there. But my parents were really like adventurous. So we would drive, they had memberships all over the place. So we would go to like, you know, we had five star video. We had um, Video King, Movie King, um, American Home and Hardware had the video store in their basement. That was my go to spot for a long time. Like I I split my time between there and um, video, uh, Video King. Yeah. Yeah, I my, my best memories though are, are Video King or Movie King it was called in Northeast. Right. Oh, there was the movie store where the um funeral home is too in yep. Northeast. Yep. 
Um, But my favorite memories are Video or Movie King because they had the horror movies were near the front of the store. So you were kind of away from the the counter. So you could you were sort of hidden from like people watching you. Right. And it was two full sections of horror movies Mm -hmm. and just looking at the box art and having to kind of like up until I was a certain age, I had to vet the movies against like what my parents thought was okay. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times like the box art would be the determining factor. So there's some movies that are like relatively tame that I didn't see until much later because the box, um, the box art was so like off putting, I guess my mom, but then there was stuff like, um, like I I, I saw uh, deep red at Mm -hmm. a really early age because the box art's just like, Sure. a baby doll like on the front of it and right. she's like oh that's that seems fine so i'm watching like this <laughs> right freaking like horrific argento movie at like eight years old yeah and i'm not allowed to watch i don't know like right some british like tame british horror movie from the 70s yeah, sure. because she thought it would scare me too much so yeah. so yeah but to your point yeah like i mean like during this time is like really like the the heyday of people buying vcrs yeah. it's people going to movie stores and running movies and that becoming like the preferred form of entertainment right. of like that kind of isolationist view of being able to watch it in your home as opposed to the more communal aspect of watching yeah, things and, and in you theaters. Had to rent them too or tape them off TV because like that's when VHS tapes would come out and they'd be well like eighty ninety dollars like for a tape. Oh yeah, hundred dollars retail. Yeah, my, it's usually like after like a year you'd be able to go to like Kmart or Ames and they'd be thirty dollars. For like the home release sure. of it or whatever, right. but I mean, I remember which usually happened, and and the releases were so far apart, so it was like usually a year yeah. from box office to rent, and then another year usually six months to a year, but usually a year for a lot of things, but from rent to buy. So. A lot of that too, I think, was the syndication contracts with the television yeah. networks. Yeah, where like they had their window where they were yeah. allowed to. Right. This is like a side note, but I remember, so I, you know, I used to work for Regal Cinemas. I was a GM for Regal Cinemas for a while. Yeah. And um, we had a meeting one time where we talked like very seriously about how uh, DVD and Blu-ray like were possibly going to really hurt us because studios were more inclined to release things in multiple formats on the same day. And you were kind of losing that when that exhibition window. And like now mm-hmm. I find that I don't even think it hurts, honestly, no. like. Maybe it hurts the exhibition company, but it definitely doesn't hurt the movie industry because there's plenty of things that I've rented for $15 or whatever to watch it, like instead of going to the movie theater to watch something in my home. Right. Right. It's amazing how far we've come in 30 years, I guess, or whatever, 35 years. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, um, okay. So let's go ahead and move on to some of these uh, other movies from 1985 because there is a... It's a lot. It's it's a really good... It's a really packed year. Yeah, so uh, let's go ahead. Um, Ghoulies. Um, I like Ghoulies a lot. I actually like Ghoulies two more mm. than I like Ghoulies. Why is that? Um, I think it's a. F- I think it's more fun. Um, Ghoulies is a really weird movie, and to me, Ghoulies is like takes itself more seriously than Ghoulies two. Like, I actually kind of like the more lighthearted, comedic approach of Ghoulies two. Um. Realized the other day I've never seen Ghoulies 3, so maybe I'll have to watch that mm. at some point. But I have seen Ghoulies 4, which is not a good movie. But I, I like Ghoulies 2 better than Ghoulies. <clears throat> Just as a side note, oh, no, hold on there, I, I found it. 87. I was wondering when The Gate came out. The Gate's a good movie. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Life Force. 
So I love Life Force, mm-hmm. and Life Force almost made this list, but I don't like Life Force was a movie I saw much later in my life, so it doesn't mm-hmm. have the same nostalgic pull for me as these other five movies do. Like all these these five movies were all movies that I loved when I was a kid. Yeah. Um I think Life Force is Toby Hooper's like second best movie. Um I think it's got some really horrific things in it. I think people don't take Life Force seriously because there's so much nudity in it mm. that it almost feels like pornographic at times when you're watching it. But it's it's a it's a pretty fascinating story. It's got kind of like some elder god like Lovecraftian elements to it mixed with like traditional like vampire horror and it's got a lot of really like strong body horror. Like some of the best special effects with like the way that the the corpses like desiccate and like turn to ash and explode and whatever. I I really love Life Force. Like Life Force is was really close to being on this list. Do you remember Toby Hooper was supposed to direct another movie that's on this list and I can't remember what it is now and then he left it and went to go do Life Force. Do you remember what movie he was supposed to direct? Mm-mm. Huh. I'll try to find out. Yeah, I don't know. And let you know. I think it might be on your list actually. That's that's why I know about it. Um. Silver Bullet. Not a huge fan of Silver Bullet. Yeah. Um, I had read... I read Cycle of the Werewolf pretty early in my life. Like, I think I was probably 10 or 11 when I read Cycle of the Werewolf. Right. So, I don't... And I probably saw Silver Bullet, like, right around the same time. I was a huge, like, werewolf fan when I was, like, a little kid. But I don't really find werewolves to be that scary. So, I mean, that's why, like, American Werewolf in London isn't on this list. You know, the howling won't make a list. Like, I just, I don't really find werewolves to be that interesting. And aside from, like, Company of the Wolves, which I think is more, like, psychological horror. And I just like more from, like, a storytelling perspective. Like, I always find the transformations to be kind of hokey and, I don't know. I know you like Silver Bullet, but I just it, it's just not. Yeah, it was like one of the, just like you have awful nostalgia picks. Like right. I, I, Silver Bullet's one of those for me. It's like I loved Gary Busey during that time period, mainly because of Eye of the Tiger. I knew him from, yeah. and then Corey Haim, right? Corey Haim, right? And then yeah. you had the like stuff with like all the Corys, like where it's like because I don't think I saw Silver Bullet until like. 87 88 like yeah. when the quarries were like kind of like in their prime um <clears throat> during that time so it's like i like the two principles in it and then i don't know i i think it might have been one of the first because i don't think i saw the howling until after that so like it might be one of the first werewolf I, things i saw i also like thinking about it i think maybe i've only seen silver bullet once yeah and i think i saw it on like television like on yeah a, i think usa like usa i think used to show it quite a bit um, like the edited version of it so yeah I mean, maybe i just haven't seen it right like to give yeah. an opinion but i remember really liking it as a kid a lot uh nightmare on Elm street part two it's just not as good as the first one and i don't think it's as good as any of the other movies on this list yeah uh, there's i mean you like it though right i do yeah. I, there's some iconic stuff in it like yeah. the I got the brains, you got the brawn, like comes mm-hmm. from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Um, definitely from like, you know, in perspective of hindsight, like one of the more interesting movies in terms of like its story and 
its development and the way the director like approached the source material. Mm -hmm. Um, But a departure from the first movie and not as good in my opinion. And I don't like it as much as three. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is probably like my third or fourth favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Probably fourth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely third or fourth because I love Dream Warriors. Um, But I like uh, New Nightmare better than it. And I might even like Freddy's Dead better than it. Yeah. Okay, um, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Yeah, it's not a good movie. <laughs> what are your feelings on the original Hills Have Eyes? I love it. It's one of, right, my it's one of your favorite art. Yeah, okay, yeah. I don't know what lists that ever... I think I just wanted to get you on the record for that when you say oh The Hills my God. Have the, the, Part 2 is bad. Hill, I Hills Have Eyes is one of the most effective... I don't know what you call it. Like inbred redneck horror movies ever like inbred societal miscreants or something i don't know but like just this like clean cut button down family versus this family of like like these two families warring against each other that both have the same inherent um like ideologies which is like self-preservation and you know, carrying on their species and right. just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really good. It's, yeah. it's maybe, maybe my favorite Wes Craven movie. Like it's really good. Uh, Friday the 13th and new beginning. Yeah. Hmm? I mean, it's fine. I haven't seen it. And that's the one where, um, Corey Haim is older, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I mean, it's 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 good. I mean, I I like it well enough, but it's not like a top five. Uh, Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead is weak compared to Dawn and Night. Um, there's moments in Day of the Dead that actually are really like burned into my memory, especially like down in that bunker with um, oh, what's the name of the zombie in Day of the Dead? Anyway, with the zombie that like they kind of teach, like they kind of like uh, domesticate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stuff in that bunker that's really like powerful and burned in my mind, but I just, I like Dawn of the Dead so much more and Night of the Living Dead's like, you know, another one of the ones it's like, even though I've seen it um, dozens of times, one of my favorite horror movies of all time, like it's hard for me because it's such a, it's so much lesser than in my opinion, those other two movies. Chiller. I don't know if I know what Chiller is. Like mm-hmm. I saw that on the list. Uh-huh. I feel like I should know it. Who's in it? Oh, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, um, who was that? That's somebody that's uh, famous. And... Well, while I'm looking that up, The Bad Seed. Oh, I love The Bad Seed. The Bad Seed was another one that almost was like right there on the cusp of making this list. Because that movie is super effective. And it's weird because when you watch it, it doesn't feel like a mid-80s horror movie. Like it feels like it was made in like... 1974 or something like it's like the film stock and the way it's filmed and even like the performances and stuff like it feels much older than it actually is but the bad seed is a really great movie oh cat's eye i like cat's eye a lot but i consider cat's eye to be not a b movie i think cat's eye is like a main mainstream like motion picture release if you counted Cat's Eye as a B-movie, would it make this list? Yeah, it might have been fifth. Yeah. 
I'm not like so I love anthology movies, but it's hard for me to put anthologies on lists like this cuz I think I like just a standalone. I mean, Ke- Quitter's Inc is great. Um Quitter's Inc is the it's, best it's, one. It's the best part of that yes. movie. The ledge is really effective, but it's just so small in terms of being a movie that it's kind of hard right. to um, the framing device is just sort of weird with, like, the little demon or whatever. Right. Um, what's the third one in that movie? No, the third one's the little demon. Oh, that's the only three? Yeah. Really? I thought there was another one. Pretty sure that's it. Um, Quitter's Inc. is amazing. And Quitter's Inc. is, like, a full-length movie probably would be on the list. But yeah. the production value in that movie is so high, too. I mean, like, it's hard mm-hmm. to call it a B movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of those ones as a kid. Like, I saw a bunch and I, I don't know. I think it, yeah, it definitely was. Um, that was another one that UPN, I, I think it was either UPN or the WB channel. Whatever it was back then. Yeah, I think it was WB. Because it was, back then. they had, Saturday you had Western, Kung Fu, and then Horror every week. Right. And they used yeah. to show Cat's Eye like all the time yeah. in the late 80s. Like sure. I've, I've probably seen Cat's Eye a dozen times and yeah. it's edited for him on like network television. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so Chiller is a Wes Craven movie uh, that is about somebody, a guy who's been cryogenically frozen or something like that. And uh, Michael Beck was the star of it. And I guess Paul Servino was also in that movie. Uh, I don't know. I've never seen it, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, and then Demons. I like Demons. I mean, that's Lamberto Baba, right? Yeah. Um, it's fine. It's um, uh, it's another one that I saw like much later. Yeah. In my like teens, I think when I was really into like Italian horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It just it doesn't have that nostalgic like it doesn't like touch me in that mm-hmm. way. I guess. Where, like, I think of it as fondly as I think of the other five that are on this list. I know you like it a lot. But. Demons is a, Demons has a, a lot of the same problems that a lot of Italian horror has to me. But it's almost like uh, Baba realizes some of the faults of, like, what they do in terms of storytelling devices and narrative. And keeps it small enough to where... I think he's actually being inter- influenced by American horror yeah. a lot more, especially things like Night, Night of the Living Dead, like, you know, Dawn of the Dead, those kind of things. And he's actually taking elements from that to allow it to be set pieces as opposed to trying to tell a narrative. So let me ask you this question, because I always get these confused. Yeah, in my this mind. is the one in the movie theater. Right. So this is the one where, like, they're watching the film yes. of Night of the Demons that right. takes place in the apartment building that came before yeah i mean it's it's, it's good there's, there's some decent stuff in it yeah yeah um no i, I think it's a it's a really effective movie and some of the special effects they do in that movie are i should watch it again really... it's free somewhere like I, it keeps popping up for me on i'm something. sure it's on shutter or it might, yeah, even, it might it even be on tubi i'm not sure yeah, um, i think it somewhere. was at one point uh that is the nice thing about these horror lists is a lot of things are like furry mm-hmm. a lot of places um Okay, so you ready to jump into number five then? Mm-hmm. Okay, so number five on your list of the top five horror B-movies in 1985 is The Stuff, directed by Larry Cohen, starring Michael Moriarty, Andrea Markovici, Garrett Morris of SNL fame, and Paul Sorvino. It is a 67% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 45% from audiences. That's strange. 
Yeah. I would actually it's just would have assumed it would have been the opposite. Yeah, no, critics actually overall tended to like the movie um, mm-hmm. because I think they got the joke. Right. And uh, I, I mean, we're, we're finding this more frequently is where audiences are scores are lower than what you expect them to be. Yeah. And I think that's because, I mean, we're just using Rotten Tomatoes. We've never really talked about this before. We're just using Rotten, uh, Rotten right. Tomatoes because that's where most people go. It's either there or Metacritic right. um, is where they go to just get like a, a glance of like what the reception's like. And I think that there are a lot of younger people that um, are predominantly like giving like reviews or scores or ratings and stuff like that on these movies and the younger people tend not to like older horror, I think. And I, that's a generalization. But I think that so many things have been remade over the years. Right. And they're used to a certain level of special effect that going back and watching some of these older movies, they just become laughable. And I and, and there's just this disconnect, I think, with younger audiences. And the editing is pretty bad. And sure, stuff sure. And- they're just not well made sometimes. Yeah. But- where I think we're we can forgive that stuff. And I think you're more forgiving than I am. Well, but, a lot of my forgiveness comes from the fact that, like, like so with this movie particularly, like I have very distinct memories of watching the stuff, like, mm-hmm. you know, like because I used to have to watch my horror movies in my parents' bedroom because that's where the smaller TV was mm-hmm. and VCR. Yeah. Um. So I just remember like being like curled up on their bed, like watching this movie, you know, a Saturday afternoon, and I don't know, like. Yeah. Also, the VHS box, like, the the guy with the face, like, melting away mm-hmm. with, like, the, yeah. the stuff leaking out uh-huh. of it is, right. like, well, one of, like, the best, like, most effective like, yeah. VHS covers. It's great. It's time. fantastic. It's one of the more memorable ones. Yeah. So, go ahead and tell us what the stuff is. It's basically some, like, I don't know, hobos, like, find this stuff bubbling <laughs> out of the ground. Right. And they decide to eat it for some reason, because yeah. that's what you do, I guess, when you're a hobo. Yeah, well, you're hungry. Right, and they find out that it's, like, delicious, mm-hmm. and so somehow... that Okay, so this movie was originally longer and got edited down by whatever the production company was because they felt like it wasn't fast-paced enough. But unfortunately, some of the stuff that got edited out was, like, actual, like, plot progression yeah so you basically jump from hobos eating like ooze bubbling out of the ground to this ooze being marketed as like the greatest like food sensation like treat with like it's no calories and it's delicious and so the ice cream consortium hires um this guy mo i can't remember his last name um to investigate like what is the stuff like you know basically commit like corporate espionage to find out, like, what what can we do to beat the stuff? Like, because ice cream sales have dropped, like, precipitously. Um, at the same time, there's this kid who realizes the stuff is actually this, like, sentient, like... I mean, it's basically the blob, kind of, except mm. that instead of it being, like, this always, like, alien force, it's a thing that people are eating in their homes. Um the kid destroys a supermarket basically which is like right. one of my favorite scenes in the it's movie good. Yeah. um and teams up with the corporate espionage guy and his girlfriend who's like a marketing exec and they conspire to take down the stuff um i mean eventually they find out you know it's this like parasitic organism that takes over your brain 
and eventually eats away at your innards and like leaves you the shell of a uh, like a being <clears throat> um but then you find out like the ice cream people are like trying to get in bed with the stuff people and trying to create like this thing called the taste which is a a hybrid of the stuff and ice cream where like it's enough to get you addicted but not enough to like take over your body and they eventually make like the ice cream execs eat the stuff and that's like that's the powerful message at the end of, right. you know are you eating it or is it eating you i think right is that yeah. his line at the end uh-huh. like it's a fa- yeah. fantastic idea um so again like i i like larry cohen a lot i think that larry cohen is like one of the i don't know if unsung or underrated like heroes of like just late very 70s. briefly for so people that don't know what other what else has he done um god told me to uh cue the winged serpent um shit what else is larry going he wrote a bunch of stuff like people are probably more familiar with his movies that he um collateral i think is his story um there's a bunch of stuff okay like in the 2000s i'm not looking for anything exhaustive i was just one people didn't know who he was what kind of stuff he was he's done yeah i mean god god told me to is so He's very much a guy that's, like, in the zeitgeist of, like, the moment where he'll find something that's very specific to the time period and create some, like, horror movie that's related to that. Mm -hmm. Like, God told me to, you know, is the burgeoning interest in, like, serial killers and, like, that idea that, like, Daniel DeFeo, like, murdered his family because voices in his head told him to and... You know, like, what makes Ted Bundy tick? And so he makes this movie that's basically, like, an encapsulation of that. Um, I don't know. Cue the Winged Serpent doesn't really fit that. But, I mean, that's it's it's a good movie. Like, it's very very much an homage to, like, Ray Harryhausen and, you know, the stop-motion animation of, like, the 50s and 60s. Um, anyway, just, like, he's he makes this movie that's, in essence, like, an homage to The Blob. I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. similar feel. To movies like The Blob, where there's this organism that you can't understand and lives. And, like, Alien, in a way, too. Yeah. Like, this organism that just lives to, like, incubate within you and kill you and, like, use you as its food. And you can't understand it or reason with it. But he does it as an attack on consumerism and commercialism and, like, corporate greed and irresponsibility on the part of, like, you know, people that are, like, putting food out, which all in the mid-80s were things that people were concerned about. Sure. And this is, like, the era of, like, conspicuous consumption, you know, where greed is good. And so here's this, you know, like, hippie making these movies that are, like, so right. anti-commercial, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's funny. It is. It's um, hilarious. Garrett Morris yeah. is really funny. Paul yeah. Servino has some really funny lines. Um Moriarty's got some great Michael lines. Moriarty, a little yeah. kid, I don't know the actor's name. Michael was. Moriarty's like his like know, like country persona that he uses to ingratiate himself with like the upper class, like right. bourgeoisie, like and the even the joke he tells about his name all the time. Um, Mo Rutherford is his name. Mo, yeah, Rutherford. Yeah. Um, the joke that he tells all the time is um, the reason they call me that is because whenever they give me money, I just want Mo. Yeah. Um, even that, like, and, and gets a laugh out of people when he uses a line like right. that. 
um, is he uses to ingratiate himself because it's like even though he's coming off as this country bumpkin in some ways because of the way he speaks, he's um, telling these jokes to say like, hey, I'm like you. Right. And he uses it to both disarm. He uses it to disarm people and like to ingratiate himself at the same time. And he's because he's this like kind of like spy character in a lot of ways that's like working on multiple fronts and he's basically a successful version of joe buck from midnight cowboy sure I mean, it's it's sure. the same character yeah. except right you know instead of being yeah. like an idiot mm-hmm. trying to like make his living selling his body he's he plays a rube that's like actually making you a rube by his like savvy yeah and yeah. is like recognized as like people like realize that he's actually like kind of dangerous because of how good he is at what he does. Right. No, it, it, it's it's yeah. This movie's really funny. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really well done. Yeah. Again, it's a shame that like it was cut up so much, and the version that you can watch whatever whatever streaming service it's on for free because it's free somewhere. Um, the stuff is currently on Amazon Prime if you're a Prime subscriber. Yeah. So it's just, it's a shame that like I, I'm sure there was like really great because I think there's some exposition at the beginning that I know was cut and there's some stuff between him and the lady like the female lead that yeah. was cut out like later and you you can tell that it's missing because there's definitely like jumps in continuity and things where you're just like okay like I guess that now this is where we are but yeah. It doesn't detract from the movie at all, I don't think. And no, it's definitely I don't, I don't. like a lot of fun. You can you can pick it and up like the, what's going on. The fake commercials in the movie are hilarious. Like they're yes. so well done. And the jingles and mm-hmm. what is it like can't get enough of the stuff or whatever uh-huh. they say and yeah. like it was, all- and the thing is is that it's a really good satire mockery of what was going on at right. the time. It it reminds you of like watching like Where's the beef and sure. the McDLT commercial? Got uh-huh. the hot set hot. Got the cool set right. cool. Right. And like um <laughs> like the new Coke and whatever, like all that stuff. Right. Because right. that's I mean, because we grew up, you know, and I'm I'm sure your childhood was much the same as mine. Like you would get up in the morning if even if you had school and you would watch cartoons right. sure. for an hour, two an hours, hour before three you hours. get right, yeah. And that would like transition into watching like reruns of yeah. I love Lucy or dark shadows or whatever was on. And all you saw were jingles that were selling like things to you. Like everything was, it was cartoons and reruns in the eighties and it was, uh, reruns and sports center in the nineties. Right. Sports center for me was more like later nineties. Like I just watched the shit out of movies. Yeah. I actually like lost the whole time of like, pop culture like in terms of commercials from like probably like 1991 to 1996 really because Hmm. i watched almost no television during Hmm. that time interesting like all i watched was movies for like half a decade yeah so there's things that like people make references to that i don't really know Hmm. because right you know it's like now like my parents complain about commercials i'm like oh like i don't ever watch television like i have no idea what that commercial the only time i see you know i saw some commercials this week because I watched one of these movies on Crackle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think Fright Night was on Crackle. Yes. Yeah. And, um, it is. And, uh, and, but I, I, um, I had to watch commercials during that. Oh, that's a spoiler. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you spoil the whole list. Huh? Um, it, it's just the next one. Right. Uh, it's going to be three minutes. Um, <clears throat> five minutes. But, uh, but yeah. So, uh, I watched commercials there and Tubi, if I watch something on there, that's yeah. it. 
that's that's my commercials anymore. But the weird thing about watching that, and because so you know Hulu, I subscribe to Hulu Plus. So you don't get commercials. Mm-hmm. It's the same with YouTube. Like I subscribe to YouTube Red because I don't want to watch commercials. Um, yeah, Tubi though, it's like it's the same two commercials. So I'm not really seeing commercials. I'm just seeing true. Like, Crackle was also that way. But here's the interesting thing about Crackle is it, it was kind of scary. Is it's using location services and giving me local commercials. Oh, that's weird. Isn't that interesting? Like, like local, like an accounts office in Rising Sun, which is only like ten miles away. It's so it's using location services to determine. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Actually. It is, um, <clears throat> but it was all, mostly local commercials. Uh, that's Sony. So yeah. So okay, so. Roger Ebert um, reviewed this movie. And I can't remember. I think he gave it like 2 out of 4 or 1.5 out of 4 or something like that. But he says the stuff is wildly, it is a wildly ambitious movie that fails because it forgets to attend to its bottom line. Before you can make a clever, funny, satirical horror movie, first you have to make a horror movie. The groundwork in the stuff is so unconvincing that it sabotages all the good things in the film, including the deadpan performance by Michael Moriarty. As a basic plot, this never quite works. The stuff isn't represented in a dramatic way. It looks like the ready whip that ate the world. And then there are distracting glitches like the scene where the kid is trapped inside the tank truck. And we can see the stuff coming after him even though there's no plausible light source. The movie falls completely apart at the end when Paul Savino Sorvino shows up as a right-wing nut with a private army. He seems like a leftover from a Saturday Night Live sketch about the Birch Society. The stuff has moments where it comes alive because of the ingenuity of the actors and Cohen's willingness to have fun with the material, but the story doesn't work and the stuff isn't as interesting as, say, flying lizards. What we have here are a lot of nice touches in service of a in search of a movie. <clears throat> so um, the the main things I want to ask you about is the horror movie aspect of this. Um, so I, I I think he says it's not a horror like it doesn't it's not a good enough horror movie for the, all those elements to actually work. And there's some good moments in the movie with people like, you know, like decaying or whatever that are mm-hmm. horrific. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of itself of like the... I, it's one of those things where you almost have to like... You have to have that foreknowledge of things that came before. Like you have to have seen the blob right, for the stuff to like have like any effect. Because it's sort of like counting on the fact that you already know like the setup. And again, because it's edited so poorly... Like, I think that some of the things that might have built it into a more cohesive horror movie are lost in it, um, which doesn't bother me as much because. So a movie that does like the, the the elements I like as a horror movie in this are things like it's really the, the stuff with the kid and his parents and yeah. his brother. So. I think it's next year, 86, probably is when or 87, maybe it's when Invaders from Mars mm-hmm. happens. And I think that's 87. I think that that to me is a really effective movie of doing the same thing those scenes were trying to do right. of like the of, of the paranoia of like knowing like these adults are corrupted in some way by some sort of evil entity or force or sure. substance and you know the paranoia that comes with that the fear that comes with that and all those kind of things watching the adults act creepy so I thought that was a really good scene but it's like if there would have would it have been maybe a better horror movie if you would have had some more of that in this? But don't you think the horror for Cohen comes from the idea of like 
the unrepentant consumerism of people that like even once some people are aware that the stuff is bad that they're still willing to like so you're saying then that where Ebert's looking at it, he because he gets all that, like he sees all of it, right. like the, the the those consumer themes and stuff like that. He talks about it, but <clears throat> do you see then that he's looking at it as those are themes inside a horror movie, and you see it as then you would argue that the horror that the horror is implicit inside the themes that are in that movie. Sure, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the horror comes from the horror comes from more people's like because of their own like greed or gluttony are willing to like accept eating this poisonous parasitic thing just because it tastes good. Mm-hmm. And that people are willing to like make because they're making so much money, they're just willing to let like people eat the stuff, you yeah. know, and and I don't know. I mean like that I, I love The Blob, you know, I love Alien, like, I, I love Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like, the Sutherland version of that movie is one of my, one another one of my favorite horror movies. So I always like the idea of the outside force, like, infesting people and mm-hmm. turning people into other things, basically, or, like, consuming people. And so I'm okay with, like, the way that they do that with the stuff. I mean, it's, it's goofy, like. Sure. It's this low budget movie. Like, I don't know what he expects. And it's things like, right. So, okay. So it doesn't make any sense that there's a light source in the tanker truck. Well, have you ever watched a movie? Like there's plenty of times where there's implausible light. Like anytime you watch a horror movie that takes place in the forest at night, like that shit is like blue and like lit from above by like a thousand fucking suns. Like, I forgive Ebert for that. He, he just gets focused on those things right, sometimes. Right, to me, that's a, like, like, that's a silly... If that if this is, like, some $100 million, like, epic opus, and they have something like that, okay. Like, be critical of it then. This is, like, probably cost, like, $10 for Larry Cohen to make this movie. You know, yeah. like, I, I, I just... Those kind of complaints, like, okay. Like, understand what you're watching. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't I don't get upset with plot continuity errors in like trauma movies because like I'm not expecting you know the or like movies like this, like I don't care. I don't know. I just enjoy it for what it is. And I think it's a really good satire. Yeah, I do too. What do you think about his uh complaint about the Paul Servino character? Because I actually I thought I thought that character was funny, but maybe So that's me. Uh, this is a time period where like John Milius was being like crucified for being very pro-war. So I think anytime... Because, you know, the media... Especially like film The administration critics, at the time was too. Right. <laughs> right. Film, film critics during this time were very anti... You know, these are all people that came out of the Vietnam era. Like, sure. they're all very anti-war. Yeah. Right. So anytime they see something that, like, almost would seem pro-war, even if it's a parody, because obviously Paul Savino's character is a parody... Like, you're not meant to take him seriously or, like, be on his side. He's he's a joke. But I can see, like, you know, where maybe he would be anti, I don't know. It's it's different time, you know? Yeah, that would actually be a, I just thought of that. That would actually be a really interesting paper to write is, 
just focusing on horror movies and looking at the effects of the Vietnam War through the characters yeah. in horror Because I'm pretty sure, uh, wasn't Silver Bullet, wasn't the uncle of that? Mm-hmm. And he was drunk. Well, you have a bunch and of And then stuff. you have Day of the Dead and the way the military right. is viewed there They're, and this and... So not, not to get off on this tangent yeah. too much, but like, we were being conditioned to be very pro-military at this point in the 1980s as children. Sure. Because we had G.I. Joe, you know, we had Rambo... Right. We had the A-team, like all this stuff was very pro, you know, Red Dawn, um, right. America with like the 2Ks or whatever, or sure. the 1K. Yeah. Um, like we were being conditioned to be very pro-military and there was a lot of movies that were coming out that were like anti-military in a lot of ways. Like right. they were like, you know, Platoon is around this time. Um right. I don't know. It's it's just yeah. like I, I I can see because I I watched a documentary a few years ago on Milius and it focuses very specifically, you know, because he was like a golden boy sure. for a long time, and then he just can't get past his like pro gun, pro military like stories, and mm-hmm. people kind of start to hate him. Yeah, and I can see like from a critical perspective where Ebert's probably very sensitive. It'd be like today if you had a movie that came out that was like really cavalier towards like like gay rights or was really condescending towards women, mm-hmm. you know, they would be attacked critically like across the board. So I can mm-hmm. see, you know, right. why he would feel the need to put something like that in. Yeah. It's just so tame, like by today's standards, not right. even tame, yeah. just like antiquated yeah. kind of sure. quaint. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Any final thoughts? No, I mean like, it's it's a fun movie, and I think it'll make you laugh, and I think that it's like, it's got some really good points, and it doesn't beat you over the head with them. It just makes them, I mean, it does in a way, but it doesn't in a very, like, funny and, like, well, like, modulated way. Yeah, there are different, I would say that there are different levels to the satire. Right. I like, agree with There's that. obvious ones, and then there's more yeah. subtle ones. Yeah. Okay, so number four on the list, Frank's already spoiled it. It is the movie Fright Night, directed by Tom Holland, starring William Ragsdale, Chris Sarandon, Roddy McDowell, and Amanda Burse. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 76 from audiences. Um, did you want to go ahead and just say a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? So, 17-year-old kid, horror fan, who's like kind of obsessed with horror movies, finds out that his neighbor is a vampire mm-hmm. um nobody believes that his neighbor is a vampire because the neighbor is like i don't know what you would call him like um debonair and whatever charming he's very suave yeah um charlie the kid um they invite the vampire in so he's allowed in the house i mean it's like the traditional like vampire story um, the vampire tries to kill Charlie. It's been a long, like I, okay. So full disclosure, I didn't watch this movie again. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to remember from like a long so time So the, so let me see if I can do this then. I'm not very good at like summarizing movies yep. like this. Cause I get into bad details, but so, so Charlie, um, Yes, the the vampire tries to kill Charlie. The vampire and, realizes Charlie's the only one that realizes he's a vampire and tries to get yeah. rid of Charlie. 
and nobody Although to, to the vampire's credit this, see this is why i'm terrible at this to the vampire's credit like he actually does tell him let's just forget all this and i'll let you go right and charlie like picks up a cross and he's then he goes to kill him but um he is willing to just like let bygones be bygones just don't say anything about me killing people and i'll let you go but um and he, and he actually says which is really interesting i didn't ask for this like this is who I am. Like, the, like I didn't ask for this, which is a really interesting thing to put in that movie to try to make that vampire, even though he's a monster by the end, he's right, the like villain, a little, a little sympathetic. A little um, sympathetic. But so yeah, so then um, so Charlie goes and hunts down um, the Roddy McDowell character, who is this um, guy that ends up is is a vampire hunter in movies right. like these kind of like horror B movies from the seventies, and he also does the um, he's the host of late right. night. He was he, he, he does the interstitial material between uh, the the commercials on the movies to kind of like you know uh, yeah he, he's basically playing like Vincent Price sure. In. So he's a dr- he's he's drunk like you know a faithless old drunk who um doesn't really believe Charlie like whatsoever when he's asking for his help Charlie's girlfriend um who ends up like you know being seduced by uh the vampire at one point um his friend is turned his his best Charlie's best friend is turned into a vampire by the vampire and the vampire Chris Sarandon and his um, Renfield-like right. assistant. Um, Evil Ed. No, no, no. Not, Evil Ed's his best friend that gets turned. Oh, right. Okay. There's also his assistant that kind of like goes out in the day for him and stuff like that and does all of his bidding. Who's like more of like this kind of, yeah, like right. I said, Renfield character. So it ends up that like, you know, Charlie finally convinces like once his girlfriend's been, and then he turns his girlfriend, but they have until dawn in order to kill the vampire and save her. Right. So he convinces Roddy McDowell to actually like that character to go help him. Um, you know, Roddy McDowell flees like when they first encounter like the two of them and like leaves the house. Um, then he goes over to, uh, Charlie's house encounters evil Ed, who's been turned, kills him, realizes, like, you know, finds, like, some kind of strength in himself, returns, and him and Charlie end up killing um, the vampire um, in the end and saving the girl. Then at the end of the, this is what I, like, clearly remember, the end of the movie, like, him and the girl are in bed, and, like, he, like, looks out and thinks he sees, like, eyes in the house, but then he's like, nah, that's, I'm just imagining things, but then you, like, evil Ed's voice comes over, and, like, you realize that he's like still alive and he's the vampire like across the street or whatever right yeah yeah so i've been traveling a lot so this like when i made this list uh-huh. like i really wanted to watch this movie again and i thought i would remember it a lot better although i remember a lot of the scenes with um roddy mcdowell really well as like the aging like alcoholic like supposed vampire killer mm-hmm. um yeah i wish i would have watched it now what i remember from the movie is i Number one, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of vampire movies. Like, mm-hmm. I really don't like most vampire movies, I don't think. Or at least I I don't tend to hold vampire movies in as high as esteem, except when I think they work really well and then I love them. Like, I think Lost Boys is a goofy-ass movie, but, like, I love the Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Mostly because of, I don't know, just, like, my memories of it as a child. Um, Fright Night's the same way. Like, Fright Night's one of the movies that I saw... Because, again, it was something where, like, the VHS box didn't seem too bad. So, my mom was right. like, oh, okay, well, you can rent that. Yeah. And then I was allowed to Great watch cover. 
It of just really like the cloud, like right, turning into the vampire's face with the yeah. fangs over the house. Awesome. Like, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um, Roddy McDowell's really good in it. Yeah. Um, I think everybody's really good in it. You want me to tell you why it's a good movie? Tell me. Okay. <laughs> so. Did you like Chris Sarandon a lot? Chris Sarandon is one of my favorite vampires of all time. Um, I do. I like Kiefer Sutherland and Lost Boys, but it's for different reasons. Like, but in terms of like the traditional like debonair like just suave like you know ladies man who you know they're it's like the as as charlie's spying on this guy the the women that he gets to like come to his house like are these amazingly attractive women like he's he comes over to um his charlie's house when he realizes charlie's seen him like bite a woman and um or suspects that he's a vampire and his, his uh, talks to charlie's mom and gets invited into the house and he's like so good with charlie's mom this kind of you know kind of dumpy like you know middle-aged like woman who you know is looking for you know somebody like you right. know now that her son's like turning 18 and um you know, and he's obviously extremely handsome and like, but he still knows how to work or like he's really good linguistically, like verbally, like, you know, in terms of his word choice, in terms of his inflection. He's just like mastered this idea of being a playboy. And it's all in service of him to, to feed his, you know, monstrous side. Right. So Chris Sarandon is like probably my favorite vampire that I've ever seen mm. in a movie like it may this is probably partly nostalgia but it's like i never saw the vampire played that way it's like almost like there's a little bit of lestat before lestat and i i think lestat like in literature probably is one of the best vampires that's ever been written um in horror stuff like in terms of like being somebody that like is interesting yeah and i think chris sarandon is interesting i also like i said already in that scene is that I find it really interesting that they imbue that character with with some uh, some pity that you can have for him. Is that it? You you understand from that line that it, assuming he's truthful and there's no reason to believe that it's not that it's like this happened to him and this is just how he has to live now. And because there is some desperation in the way that he says it, and I think that's extremely interesting to add that into a horror comedy, uh, which is what this is right. to some degree. Um, I think the I'm always a sucker for uh-huh. uh, right. so I'm I'm always a sucker for movies where it's like there's the old person who is either that has to be called in that's like, you know, doesn't believe in themselves anymore, or doesn't believe in an right. idea and has to be. Uh, persuaded to come back in and join the fight. So I love the idea that Roddy McDowell is like, you know. At one time, I think, even though he's never fought a vampire in his life, the, the actor, like, you know, that he actually kind of maybe believed in things at one point. Like, he believed in good and evil, at least. He right. believed in God. And he has to be, you know, uh, this, you know, guy who's, like, now a television star is losing ratings. Um, you know, and now he's become a drunk and he doesn't know what to do with his life. That, like, he has to be called in by this dumbass kid who goes to him because he believes that he actually fights vampires. Um, I I love like that those type of stories, so that works really well for me. I think William Ragsdale, who has had 
moderate amount of television success throughout the rest of his career as character actors. Uh, really good role in Justify later in his life as um, the second husband to Raylan's. Um, oh, right, right. Uh, 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 for his, his Raylan's wife. Um, Herman's Head had that sitcom yeah, on Herman's for head. three or four years, um, which is a very 90s thing, Herman's Head. But um, I think he does really well like in this movie. Um, I think he plays Charlie with the right amount of mania and the right amount of fright. And I think that's one of the things I like is his performance kind of sets a balance for the movie where it takes itself seriously, but not so seriously that you laugh at it. You're laughing with it when you laugh. Yeah, that's a good point. And so you can kind of take it seriously and be invested and suspend your disbelief because it takes itself seriously. It's coherent inside of its own world. And I think his performance is a big part of that, um, of allowing you to do that because he's he's taking it seriously. Right. And there's nothing tongue in cheek about it or anything like. Well, there is, but it's like it's an it's a it's a meta perspective that's tongue in cheek. It's not Charlie. So you can invest in Charlie's story. You can suspend your disbelief. This is a real threat. This is how he really feels about these things. But you can also see how silly the whole fucking thing is when you know as you're like kind of watching and analyzing at the same time and you get the jokes that they're like they're telling and there's tons of great humor in this like about youth um like uh the the it's the 17 year old 18 year old relationship like um with him and amanda burse who's who's pretty good in this too i was like i she she's famous for being marcy darcy on um um married with children but um she's pretty good in this of playing kind of like the the prudish harpy 18 year old girlfriend who feels like she's holding Charlie back at times, or at least that's evil Ed's like, you know, perspective is like, she's, she's kind of holding Charlie back, but it's like, he really does like care for her and like, right. he is in love with her. Um, but he also is like looking for adventure cause he's turned 18 and, um, she's probably the weakest part I would guess of the movie in some ways, but, um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think that the characters are really well acted. It it, it takes itself seriously without being uh, without with still being funny and you're not laughing at it. You're laughing with it throughout the entire thing. I think it has great vampire in terms of the horror elements. I mean, it's not scary necessarily, I would say, like, but there's some really great, I think, gross special effects towards the end, like, you know, of. Uh, the Renfield character when he like just kind of disintegrates is really good. Yeah. I think the stuff in the basement when um, and I can't watch it now without thinking it from dusk till dawn where they start throwing things and anything they could find in the basement, like through the windows of like the, that are in the basement to try to like, just have like these little like uh, rays of light yeah, rays come of light in. Things. So it's like trapping like Chris Sarandon. Um, I think the, when he turns into a vampire, I think it looks really good. It actually looks a lot like Ed Herman's like vampire in uh, Lost, right Boys. In Lost Boys, yeah. like that kind of like oddly caveman esque like vampire. Um, so I don't know if Schumacher was influenced by that, like or not. But um, I, I thought the special effects for the vampire stuff was really well done. Um, in it too is even when he turns into a vampire um when um uh 
he first confronts Charlie and tries to kill him. Um, he turn when he turns into a vampire and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I I just think it's a really good movie. I mean, I we talked about it last night, but it's like I created my own list. This would be second on my list out of the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a a really you did a really good job. I wish <laughs> I would have had the time to watch it. Again. <laughs> um, <clears throat> what if we did the special effects for it? I did. I do not look. I, I'm not like a special effects like. Um, I don't know what's the what's the friend. Mark. Mark's good. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of what the not because one of them's negative. Geek and nerd, right? Like yeah. one of them's considered negative. One of them's considered okay. Which one is the one that's okay? Geek's okay. All right. Yeah. I'm not a special effects geek, so I never really like look into. It's important to me, usually. Yeah, Janet uh, Maslin actually reviewed this, and um, she says that I mean I don't know I've I've already talked about it I guess, but she she claims that it's like the 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 tone is never exactly comedic, and its horrific touches are more disgusting than scary. Um, she says it establishes Holland as a newcomer, like you know, with some promise, but it's uneven and flat. If I I mean, I don't think that's true. I I think if it's uneven or flat, it's like I think there's scenes that you could cut out, but they'd have to be surgically cut out. I don't think it's like one sequence that needs to go. It's like you can cut off one minute here, two minutes there, and kind of surgically cut it down. Probably fifteen minutes off of it because it does feel a little long. I suppose for a horror movie, um, I think it's like. And that could be because I was watching it with commercials too. Yeah. But um, but it does feel like maybe like ten minutes could be I mean, excised when, from. When them. we were going, when I was going through the list of all the movies from this year, like my usually I just go with my gut reaction as to what like when I see the name of the movie, like oh yeah, like I love that movie. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like for, I I I knew Fright Night was always going to be on the list because again, this was a movie I saw when I was a kid. Like I loved it when I was a kid. I probably haven't seen this movie in 15 years, maybe. Hmm. It's been since I watched it. Like, I have it on DVD. Um, it was a tough week to, like, watch anything. Like, I was exhausted yeah. after work every day, so hard to, like, come home and watch stuff. Um, and there was stuff that I have seen, like, far further away that I had to watch instead. But, right. you know, I don't remember it being uneven or, like, right. I think it's well-paced. Like, every, all of the things you said, like, I agree with, like, remembering them the scenes in the house like what you're talking about with them like creating the little like um holes for the light to come through Uh like i always thought that was pretty brilliant yeah that's a that's a really cool idea um and i just like the interactions between brewster and um charlie and uh the vincent character like Mm -hmm. the vincent price or peter cushing i guess is probably yeah yeah. more what he is because cushing was more the vampire killer right um yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. I really need to. I'll, I'll probably watch it. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. Yeah. So did timely. you did you ever see the remake? The one from, like, 2011? Yeah. No, I don't really have interest in remakes, usually, of yeah. movies I like. Right. I, yeah. I remember reading a review of it that made it sound like it's very, like, it loses the fun of the original movie. Hmm. Um, yeah. I was just always interested in... Um, I haven't seen it either. And but I was always interested in the idea of Tenet playing the Roddy McDowell character. 
as oh is he in that as the character yeah oh, i had no idea but he pl- he plays it more as like a um i think i want i think i saw back when it came out more like a what's 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 his name chris the magician something chris, chris angel chris angel like he takes more of like a chris angel like approach to like the character himself like um i guess and i so i, I was kind of interested in that and i don't know how true that is but that's what i read in some review back then but um i was always interested by the idea of tenant like yeah being, that's interesting i mean i remember not hearing good things about it yeah and there's certain movies that i feel like you just don't need to remake them sure um sure I mean, I felt that way when I heard about the remake being made. Yeah. Like, why would you do that? But, Plus, but for I, such like like a, I mean, I I loved Fright Night when I was a kid, but it's kind of like a minor film. So yeah, yeah. Although I guess maybe that's the thing is you know that you can just take this and like remaking The Fog or something like. Sure. Yeah. The yeah, remakes are <laughs> dumb for the most part. Yeah, most of the time. They just remake bad stuff. I don't understand why they don't. Right, like take something that sucked and remake it. Yeah, I've been making that argument for 15, 20 years now. Like, bats. Like, take bats and redo it. Like, baps? Bat. <laughs> I think we've had this joke on this podcast at some <laughs> I point. Know, I like that joke a lot. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, number three on your list is Reanimator. Yeah. Directed by Stuart Gordon, starring Jeffrey Combs, Bruce Abbott, and Barbara Crampton. It has a 95% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 82% from audiences. Wait, what's the critic score? 95. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so, based on H.P. Lovecraft's story, basically by the same name, Herbert West, Reanimator. Um, Combs plays Herbert West, who's a eccentric doctor slash mad scientist kind of that's discovered the key to reanimating dead tissue um west transfers to miskatonic university which is the big lovecraft like you know university well it's actually hans gruber i think that like figures it out and he takes it no I, he, it's it's him and hans gruber discovering it right. together and then hans gruber like dies right like his face explodes right right yeah. um so West enrolls in the college and immediately runs afoul of uh, Doctor Hill, who's like the resident like brain specialist. Um, and West is like just a I don't know sour asshole basically to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. West moves in with Dan. Is that the character's name? Yeah. Um, this young, clean cut, aspiring doctor who's having an affair or like in a relationship with the daughter of the Dean of the university um, secretly because the Dean doesn't want her like, you know, with anybody when she's like young and in college. Um, West reanimates the corpse of uh, Dan's cat, which he may or may not have killed. Like you never know for sure if he like maybe murdered the cat because he didn't like the cat or maybe the cat really did just like die accidentally. Um, but convinces Dan that he needs to help him, um, like explore, like the secrets of reanimation. Dan then like an idiot goes and tells the Dean about like their like experiments and the Dean basically like expels them both from school. Um, they reanimate a corpse in a morgue. Uh, the corpse kills the Dean. They reanimate the Dean. 
the dean goes crazy um dr hill who has this weird like fetish for the daughter meg um tries to steal west's formula west murders him with a shovel then reanimates his body and head for some reason the body and head like work in concert to then escape and steal west's formula and create like an army of reanimated zombies um there's this big climactic battle where meg ends up getting killed and then the end of the movie is dan like reanimating meg's corpse like off screen and you know it's 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 an amazing movie like in terms of it's pacing it's acting like combs is ridiculously good as as herbert west just in this weird skittish nebbish but like threatening like complete asshole but also like almost like a like semi like homoerotic love for dan like he wants to protect dan and like wants his help to like be successful i don't know there's so many like weird like subtle layers to that performance um but still funny oh my god it's hilarious like it's like He's such an asshole. You let you end up by the end of the like halfway through the movie, you just start laughing right. at a lot of his lines because he's just such an asshole. You can't and help it's yourself. Like, it's like you want to root for him because he really is in a lot of ways like the protagonist of the movie. But he's like he's a murderer, and he's the one of my favorite lines in the movie is um, Meg and Dan are like so they come home and they find that Herbert's put the dead cat in the refrigerator, and Herbert's like, well. I found the cat dead and I figured you'd want him like preserved, but I had to go out and do stuff. And they were like, well, you could have left a note. And he's like, what would that note have said? Dead cat details to come or yeah. details to follow. It's uh-huh. hilarious. It is. Um, It's got really great special effects. Uh, some of my favorite like zombie special effects. Uh, Hill. It's really creepy stuff with like, so his head gets severed from his body with a shovel. And then Herbert reanimates the head and then reanimates the body. Yeah. So they're working in concert with each other. Um, so he kidnaps Meg at one point and he's in love with her. And they find out he has like a file that's like fetishistic with like pieces of her clothing and like, fo- like, mm-hmm. like candid photographs of her. So he ties her down to a table in the morgue, like an operating table, and then has his body pick up his head so he can like molester basically with his tongue and it's implied that like he's gonna like perform cunnilingus on her when herbert comes in to you know quote unquote save the day yeah and it was more disturbing than basket case which i is which is a very disturbing scene to me yeah but it was more disturbing because there it's just the whole thing's filmed in a way that everything's implied mm-hmm. mm. but like the fact that like they actually showed this explicit severed head of like a 50 some year old man of a 50 some year old lecherous old professor like doctor or whatever like at the at the hospital like licking the nubile body of like yes. a 22 year old it co-ed. is just disturbing with as, like blood like running down his yes disturbing as hell yeah but if you have a sick sense of humor, it's it's, it's pretty funny. Funny, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I I love the special effects. I love the way that the way they film everything. Um, Stuart Gordon is an amazing director. Um, really underrated, I think, or maybe not underrated, but 
like this and from beyond i think are both amazing films i love from beyond um and it'll probably end up on maybe next year's list i think it's 86 um but just a really it's a really good examination of what's the price for knowledge like what and that's an age-old question like sure. it's 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 the story of you know dr frankenstein it's mm. like what what are the lengths that are acceptable to go to to have the breakthrough that potentially eliminates death from human existence and herbert to his credit like that's what he thinks he's doing he thinks that he's like found this breakthrough that'll eliminate you know right like that'll make doctors like irrelevant almost but doesn't realize that like it's it's not working like you know the cat comes back and it's murderous and crazed they bring the dean they bring like the one corpse back to life and it's murderous and crazed but you know what? We're going to bring the Dean back right. to life. Maybe this time. Right. <laughs> right. Every time. It's like, like no, it makes no sense why he murders Hill and then like brings like almost to gloat, I guess, right. is yeah. the reason. So yeah. he can like yeah. puts his severed head in like a, a pan mm-hmm. and then just kind of makes fun of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's ego. That's nothing right. but ego, I think, at that point. Um, because they, right, because they have such a spiteful relationship. Yeah, the, the only thing that's... But it, maybe, it, it leads, I mean, uh, but ultimately it's like, you know, while all that stuff is, like, kind of funny because it's just, like, it's a comedy of errors at that point inside right. of a horror movie of just doing the same thing and expecting different results. I mean, it's insanity, right? Like, I mean, right. like, because he, Herbert West is fucking crazy. Yes. But, but the, the, the horror of that movie, to some degree, like, it does build to, like, real horror, even as funny as it can be at different points um, of that insanity getting passed on to Dan Kane, who through his love for his, for his fiance ends up like the last image of that, of even despite knowing what's going to happen. Right. That love. uh, He's so crazed that he like sits there in that last shot of him injecting her and the, and the, God, that's so beautiful. Like when, like the whole thing goes black except as he's injecting for, her, except, except for the glow of the green of the yes, um, reanimate. Or whatever so good, so good. I also so this is something we never talk about, but this movie has some of my favorite opening credits of any horror movie. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. with the like the anatomical diagrams, like mm-hmm. moving in and out of like animated through the shot with like the the credits on it like I, mm-hmm. I i think it's a really brilliant opening and and anybody who um anybody's listening to this right now that's what they'll end up hearing um for the intro tonight is the uh intro for this movie um, by richard band richard band um which you'll notice it has elements of psycho yeah in it because he uh was heavily inspired by bernard herman um when he wrote the theme for the, when he created the theme for this so it's, it's a very 80s vibe of yeah. like like the burbs or ghostbusters like just mm-hmm. the way that like that music is yeah. manic but also like classic and right it just it's right almost like psychos theme a little bit but like more uh, that, like upbeat and yeah i was talking to a friend of the podcast or ryan wallmaker i was talking to him over text this week because i sent it to him and i was like you know you should probably you know you should check this out like because you know it's definitely like bernard herman-esque and 
you know, he texts me back, oh, that's hot. Like, you know, and we were talking about it. And he's like, that's he, he just took Psycho, didn't he? And just like redid it. And uh, I'm pretty sure and he has a better ear for that kind of stuff than I do. And so I think you're right. I think it's just yeah. um, I think it's just Psycho kind of like remodeled in some ways. Yeah, but, As you can um, tell, I'm expert when it comes to talking about <laughs> any kind of thing about music. Like, <sighs> yeah, but I, I mean, Stuart Gordon does some amazing movies, and he actually has three movies in a row that are all really good. And it's this uh, from Beyond and Dolls, um, but just really well paced, a really good balance of like uncomfortable weird interactions between West and like other people and like outright horror in terms of like the reanimated corpses and tongue in cheek, like humor, you know, like the so many small things like the security guard, just letting Hill go in because he's reading his, his nudie mag. And like, he hears something happening. He's like, Oh, it's time for me to go on break. And just picks it up and like goes to the bathroom and I don't know. But I, I, but I, that's what I love about it is like as much as all that kind of like, like we're talking about it being a comedy and it is the comedy supersedes the horror, I think a little bit throughout the middle of it because you're, it's, it's, it's so chaotic and wild and funny that you think you don't really think about the horror so much of like being a reanimated corpse and like what happens there. But I think that's what the brilliance of the movie is, is it still ends like you don't realize until the end that Herbert West has come in and systematically ruined this guy's entire life. Oh, several people's entire life. Oh, yes. But I'm specifically your pro- your real protagonist is Dan Kane. Right. And it's like he's ruined this guy's life. He's took everything away from him and basically turned him into a complete lunatic, basically turned him into himself. Himself. And himself um, without the wherewithal. When what's the second movie? Is it Bride of Reanimator? And I mean, the, it's that's funny too because it's like the because the joke just continues that he consistently ruins Dan Kane's life. Like no matter what, he's just always ruining right. his life. Um, which I think is a really funny movie too. Like I, I it's not as good as this, but it's um, I think it's fun. Um. <clears throat> So yeah, like that's the real horror of it is they really does you don't get it until like the very end when Meg dies, like that he's destroyed. Right, and Herbert this, West suffers no consequence none. ever. Right, like there's there's no comeuppance for Herbert West. None. He just yeah. just gonna move on. He's uh-huh. fine. And it's the same thing. It'll like have he, a very, it'll have a very cold, clear, logical explanation of why everything he did was okay. Right. <laughs> I didn't murder Hans Gruber. I saved him. Right. Um, which I forgot about the Hans Gruber thing. Yeah. Like until I heard it, I was like, and and I tried to look up online, and it's like I see now Gruber's a very common name um, in Germany, but um, and as is Hans, but it's like I still like I, there has to be a connection. Yeah, you would think. You know that the there's it can't be a coincidence that. They've named that character Hans Gruber um, and Die Hard then after this. But any final thoughts on this? No, I mean it's just it's it's a really fun movie. Yeah. It's definitely more than almost any movie we've reviewed in this like series. It holds up yeah. and is like still really enjoyable and really watchable yeah. to this day. This would be number one on my list for this year, and it's the only other movie besides Evil Dead 
out of any of these lists that I absolutely 100% think holds up today um, with no consideration whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like, is like, I think you could watch it in 2019 because that's the other thing is the HD watching that version looked beautiful. Yeah, it looks really beautiful. It's really well filmed. And it's filmed in because, and I think it's because they're adapting Lovecraft. They film it in a way, it's like, yeah, okay, the makeup, the hair, but like even the clothes because it takes place in like it, the clothes aren't don't date it that much because it takes place in a hospital so it's like people are wearing coats a lot of times and those kind of things right. even what they wear in normal life like right is you know, pretty Meg standard is just wearing sweaters and skirts right. and yeah dan's just wearing jeans it's really and, just the hair and some of the makeup yeah. choice and stuff like that that date it in any way so it's like i think just like evil dead at times I think it's kind of thing where it's kind of can remain classic, yeah, um, for a long time. So yeah, I love Reanimator. Reanimator is one of the movies that, um, like, actually like disturbed the shit out of me when I was a little kid. Yeah. Like, there was a lot of stuff in it. I'm not very good with the idea of like needles into heads or mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the scene where um Hill like pulls the um the scalp up and then the cranial plate yeah, off yeah, to take uh-huh. the brain out like really right. bothered me when I was a little mm-hmm. kid. Um. Yeah. And still kind of, like, makes me a little uncomfortable, like, today watching it. But special effects are amazing. Like, the performances are all really great. Like you said, it's got a really great score. Yeah. Just really, really well done movie. Yeah. Wesley showed this to me. I think I was 12. So, I was a little older, so it didn't bother me quite as much. Like, um, you know, like, in that kind of of way. 12 or 13. It was, like, 92, 93. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I saw a lot of, like, a lot of these type of movies, like, you know, um, when I was young, a lot of, because of Wesley, but this is one of the ones that he showed me, and it's like, even at that age, I was like, oh my god, this is great, like, yeah. I really love this, and um, I think I like it even more today than I did then, even. Yeah, and it has that great, like, madcap caper feel to it, yeah. even though it's, like, completely insane. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. You know, no. like, they really are, like, this duo that's trying to... right. Like, like you said, like, oh, well, it didn't work that time, but let's try it again. Right. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Okay. Let's go ahead and move on to number two. Number two. Okay. So number two on the list is Dario Argento's Phenomena, also known as Creepers in the United States release, starring Jennifer Connelly, Donald Pleasance, Daria Nicolaito, Leedy. Um, is a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 68% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, did you want to explain what this movie is about in a coherent, clear fashion? <laughs> and uh, tell us why you like it so much. Um, pretty difficult movie to give a plot summary of that wouldn't take like 30 minutes, I think. Um, basic premise of the movie is uh, Connolly is the daughter of a famous movie star who's sent to a um, all-girls school, basically a boarding school. Um, she sleepwalks and witnesses a murder um, and gets lost in the woods and is found by the Donald Pleasance character, uh, McGregor, who's an entomologist. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out that she has the ability to telepathically communicate with insects. Um and is sort of like branded as a like crazy by the other girls in the school because of her sleepwalking and because of the murders that happen like around her. Um, oh. eventually 
she's going to be committed for being crazy, but she escapes and in escaping, like ends up basically getting captured by the woman that's the headmistress of the school, um, who turns out to be the one that's been killing everyone. Um, the woman has a deformed son in a cellar that is like apparently the product of like her being raped. The son is also psychotic. Um, basically the premise is everybody dies except for a chimpanzee and Jennifer Connelly. Um, and they hug at the end and it's good. So probably doesn't sound like a very good movie. Um, it definitely suffers, I think, in some ways from a lot of Argento's movies, which is that it's a lot of really great set pieces without much cohesion between them. Like, it's just, there's some real, like, big jumps in logic as the movie goes on, but um, I don't care because it looks really good. And, like, I love, I love the the visual composition of the movie. Like I like really like the way that Argento films scenes, especially at night. Um, like I love the way he lights things. I love the way he films like the wind in the trees and it's accompanied by a great, like the audio. I don't even know how you would say it. Like the, the sound production, I guess of like capturing the noise of like wind and trees and like creaking branches and muffled footsteps and stuff is all really like creepy and well done. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of Argento's like ridiculous plot twists, things that happen in his movies where it's like, oh, it's the person you least suspected. And it's somehow always Daria and Nicolita is like the one you didn't suspect is like the monster. Basically, um, a lot of people getting beheaded, you know, there's. The stuff with, like, the insect telepathy, I think, is a really cool angle because it's not really something that you see in movies. And it's an, an interesting, like, weird power that she can control and, like, communicate with, like, these bugs. Because, sort of because, like, the typical thing is that, you know, women are afraid of, like, they're squeamish about bugs and especially young girls. And she sort of embraces them and they're kind of her only friends or, like, these flies and <clears throat> insects that she can call to her and, like gain knowledge from um i just think i think it's beautiful um i love the opening scene like i really feel like it has so the the film opens with this young girl who's a tourist who gets separated from her tour group and ends up wandering into this house in the woods and gets pursued and beheaded um and their head like rolls down in the waterfall like down into the river um, but really like feels like lonely and desolate and it builds in my opinion like a real strong feeling of like hopelessness and like it's very tense and I think that the movie carries that throughout like I think that the when it works it's when it works at its best is when you're following Connolly who's because she's sleepwalking because she's disconnected from reality anyway is in such perilous situations and so close to this killer but isn't able to like even recognize that she's in any kind of danger. And it, it, it feels like it feels dangerous and it feels like it has like high stakes to me. Like I, I find that that part works. And again, like, I don't know if it's so if, if you've ever seen this movie as creepers, creepers is like 
15 to 20 minutes shorter than Phenomena. Like, it cuts out some stuff, so it makes even less sense, um, the American release of it. Um, but Argento... Argento is always about moving you from set piece to set piece and just finding a way to connect. Like, I imagine that he's sitting there, like, when he's writing his movies, he's thinking, like, oh, it'd be amazing to film a scene where, you know, this girl falls into, like, this pit that's filled with, like, maggots and insects because all the dead bodies are there. And he's got to find a way to get protagonists from set piece A to set piece B where that happens. Um... So for me, like, I think you have to not really suspend your disbelief, but I think you really have to, like, just ignore certain logical fallacies and certain, like, bad plot points and just let yourself enjoy, you know, how masterful Argento is at, like, framing scenes and filming scenes and how brilliant he is with, like, lighting and color and sound and all those things and... I don't know. Like, I, I saw Creepers when I was really young. Um, and I actually didn't see Phenomena until I was probably an adult, I guess. I didn't see the full cut of this until I was, like, in my 20s, maybe. I got a bootleg of it from somebody on the, like, the early days of the internet. Like, we did, like, videotape trading, and I got a copy of, like, like the Italian Laserdisc release of this. Mm. Um, and I got to see it in full and was, like, amazed at how much better it was of a movie. And I've probably seen it like three or four times since then. Um, I've watched this movie at least twice in the past like three years, I think, because it's a movie I always go back to when I see it just because I like it so much. Um, Again, like one of the weird things about Argento is like he's always given you protagonists that you absolutely cannot relate to. Like that's like Argento's big thing is like, Maybe if you're, like, a wealthy European, like, you can relate to him. But, like, as, like, me, like, I don't relate to any of Argento's protagonists. But that also lends kind of a disconnected dreamy quality to everything. Because it doesn't feel, like, it feels, like, almost, like, fairy tale like all of his movies. And I don't know. I would honestly, if, if you made me rank, like, Argento's movies, this is definitely in my top three. And maybe, like, number two, even. what you got i don't necessarily disagree with anything that you said except for the fact that except for probably that last point about next to last point about just ignoring all the logical fallacies like ignoring the movies itself and just focus on the scenes because i don't know i can't do that um like, I think it's really right. impossible for me to do that. So this is, this is like, where we always have a golf in, like, our opinions, especially of horror movies, because, like, I, I love, think particularly in Italian horror movies. Right. right? I mean, I love um, Jess Franco, and I love uh, Lucio Fulci. Mm-hmm. And even, um you know, like, you like Demons a lot, but, like, L- Lamberto Baba has filmed some stuff that suffers from the same... Demons suffers from it a little bit. Yeah, but he has other stuff that's much worse. Sure. Um, and to me, it's just like, maybe it's just growing up with Italian horror yeah. and really like always finding that like, I enjoy it so much yeah. that I'm just okay with it. Like I can just look past it and like focus on what I really enjoy about the movies. Um, and I think that Argento is like far and away, especially through 
maybe his next two films is like the master of like just the brilliant set piece horror that doesn't necessarily make sense but is really like evocative and well framed and masterfully like filmed from like a cinematography standpoint so i think you're exactly right that he comes up with ideas in his head for scenes and he thinks it's a cool idea and he figures out a way to construct a plot around those sequences i also think that because of that if you showed someone one of his scenes Kind of like what I was saying earlier about dissecting movies. It's like if you show them a one minute clip, a three minute clip, depending on the scene. It's like independently by just taking those scenes out of context and you look at the cinematography, you look at the music and the score, you look at the coloring, like you look at all these different factors, not the acting usually because the acting is usually not that great. Wooden, typically. So if you look at all those things. You and, and I've made this argument with him before. It's like you you see what a fantastic fucking director the guy is. Right. I mean, stylistically, like conceptually, like you know, um, he just he knows what he's doing. Right. He's a fantastic director. But once you put all those elements into a movie. The movie itself ranges from okay because at least there weren't as many logical flaws or as or too much absurdity to absolute shit because hmm. it's completely absurd and I think there are elements of this movie that are interesting. I hate insects. I hate bugs. So that doesn't necessarily appeal to me in this movie, but I do agree with you that I think it's an interesting take or like different, something different, something unique, something new. And I think there's things that you could do with it, but Jesus Christ, this movie takes those absurdities that he has sometimes and just multiplies them throughout. Like to the, by the end of this, the last 15 minutes like i'm just groaning like the the goddamn mutated child like right and the water scene and then the i don't even know what kind of insects they are like they come down from the damn sky and then it's a fire and then it's this and it's like oh my yeah, the god this is and then the kid is tacking her in the water and right and then she comes back like like <laughs> and into then it the and, murders. And, yes and then yeah. it's like slits her throat um and they hug at the end. Like, it is, to me, just so absurd. It's just stupid. So. And I, and, I, and, I, and I don't find it, like, and maybe I don't get, maybe an Italian, maybe there's an Italian sense of humor that I don't get or something like that. I don't know if it's a sense I don't of humor. Th- I don't think it's funny. I think it's pretentious more than a sense of humor. Probably. I mean, so, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. But even if it were, I'm laughing at it, I can't even laugh at it because I think it's just that damn dumb. (laughs) Like, that I can't even laugh at the end of this movie as how absurd it is. Do I think the set pieces are good? 
of course he's a he's a wonder like there are there are times where this guy can create such a wonderful sense of tension like you know and 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 like the setting like in terms of like the nighttime scenes you're talking about with the wind blowing it's like you feel almost like you're in that Right, it makes you feel isolated and right. Like it's lost it's so good. Like the threatened. the opening scene you're talking about, incredible, incredible. And here's the other thing about these damn movies is that like you know, and I said it during Suspiria, and it's like he just keeps doubling down on the same awful concept. Is it gets to that point where it's like she's gonna be murdered after this wonderful building of tension and scene. And he has to do this damn dumb slow-mo, let me er almost eroticize this killing. And all it does is there's no, there's no artistic (coughs) reason. There's no artistic reason for it whatsoever. And because his special effects aren't that, that great, it like actually like shows you how bad the scene looks by doing a slow-mo it's like and and this is probably a difference it's like you know he thinks by like slowing it down it makes it more horrifying because you're seeing it more or something i think it exposes the poor makeup the poor special effects and murder is brutal murder murders fast in those kind, especially in the types of murders that he has sometimes not all of them it's like, you know, but it's like, it's like, it makes sense. Like in what's the, I don't, I don't like that either, but it's like, at least it's better. What What's, what's the second movie? Inferno. Of, Inferno. So it's like the, the, the window pane coming down. Right. At least that makes sense because it's like supposed to be this, it's trying to scare the person and make them see their death coming, which has a horrifying element to it. And I'm not a big fan of that either, but it's better because it makes sense. And according to the story. To unnaturally <coughs> go into slow mo during that sequence, like it's 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 the climax of that scene, and then it's like he has to be so damn pretentious and artistic about it that it to me it like ends up ruining the scene. So it's like when I like watch this, I'm like sitting here, like you know, I'm sitting in the bedroom, like watching, you know, on like a Sunday afternoon, and this incredible sequence happens for the first six seven minutes of the movie. And then that happens, and then I immediately pick up the phone and text you. It's like, God damn it. Like, why does he always have to? Like, so, it makes me it makes me so angry that the like at times that this guy is so good at what he does, but he has these pretensions and a lack of focus on creating a compelling story where you can suspend your disbelief at times. And sometimes he's better than others. Like, you know, I mean, he is. Like Some um, stories are more coherent than others. Right. But it's like he, his pretensions and his inability to craft a damn story that makes logical sense around his scenes, which shouldn't be that difficult. Come on. It's like you just really don't care. You really don't care right, at that but point. You're, you're so... And you're missing just, the point. Like, you... you Argento is an amazing filmmaker and a poor storyteller. Like, seriously, he's just not a very good storyteller. But sometimes, like, with with, with film especially, you know, 
like I love like Alejandro Jodorowsky, right? Like I love his movies. Mm-hmm. Not much cohesive narrative to any of his movies. It's like almost the same thing. He's a guy that is going to film. Sure, it's not. It's because Argento is doing it in a more like commercially viable format. Like Argento is making horror movies, and his goal is to present like stunning visuals. Like he's maybe he thinks he's making like good narratives. I don't think he cares. Honestly. I don't think he cares either, and I don't think it's the same. Like I think, I think Jodorowsky's as much as I have problems with some of that stuff. It's like I think there's meaning behind what he's doing besides just visuals. I think there's like you know points that he's trying to make i think that it's all symbolism it's like he's a painter like you know i i think it's completely different because he's actually making social political points like inside his pretentious like you know like uh, scenes that he's creating argento is not trying to make a whole lot of like socio-political like commentary i i forgive jodorowsky for that stuff because in his mind i think he's actually is creating like a narrative through argument through these kind of almost like different like you know scenes like you know while yes they don't form a coherent story i think that they're making a coherent argument of the point that he's trying to make probably like that's not what argento is not trying to be like high-minded from an ideological standpoint argento is just trying to like he's just presenting these things that are in his brain like these set pieces these scenes and he does it in my opinion almost better than anybody else in the genre and i don't so that's what you got to appreciate like mm -hmm. at some point you have to be able to sit there and say like okay i don't expect greatness from this plot like i don't expect to and you know as ridiculous as it is, like, how it moves from, like, plot point to plot point, it all makes sense, sort of. I mean, from, like, his, the ridiculous perspective that the woman is just trying to, like, cover up her shame, basically. Yeah. And she's murdering people who are sexually promiscuous because she's so opposed to sexuality because she was raped and her rape caused like the birth of this deformed like psychotic monster basically i mean that's not like a progressive viewpoint on anything but i mean that's what you're working with so fuck it like who cares like i i don't i just think that you can't like i think you have a lot of trouble getting past movies that lack like really good narrative cohesion and just seeing them for what they are. And for me, like, Argento's movies are just... And when he, like, later in his career, when he focuses more on narrative, his mm. movies are terrible. Like, his, like, after... I would I would say there's, like, three more good things that Argento does in his entire career after this movie. And one of them is a movie that, like, I, I love. And two of them are just okay. And everything else is shit. You know, and it's like, because that's not what he's about. That's not what he's good at. He's not good at telling stories. He's just good at giving you. Hire somebody that's good at it. No, who cares? That's Uh, not what it's about. Like, it's you. You completely miss the point of why Argento's great. Honestly, like you just, I don't know. It's just lost on you. Three three minutes at a time. Right. That's fine. That's it's not not to make a movie. I I mean, I disagree. Not to make a good movie. Like, it's, you're bringing people into the cinema 
who just want to be titillated. And he does that. He doesn't care about telling like a cohesive narrative because the audience doesn't care at that point. Like the people that are going to see these movies in the 1980s, they don't they don't give a shit if like you're telling like a great compelling story. I mean, like some directors are into that because Stuart Gordon is telling a good story because he's like a classically trained filmmaker who wants to make like a traditional movie. Like Argento doesn't care about making a traditional movie, you know? And plus like you're watching it not in the language that it was intended to be, you know, watched it and you're watching like an English dub. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the, what did you watch it on? Is it on prime or it's uh, currently on prime? Yes. If you're a subscriber, yeah. was it subtitled or dubbed dubbed? Right, so, I mean, because of course, because Pleasance is an English actor and Connolly's sure. an American right. actor yeah. and Dario Nicolini's like an Italian actress, mm-hmm. so right. I think there's some, I think there's some stuff that's lost in translation there, but he really is just moving you from scene to scene, and he's finding, like I said, like I think he plans these these things out in advance, like he thinks like I'm going to have this happen, this happen, this happen. And then he just finds a way to connect those dots in as easy a way. Well, not even easy, but in a, whatever way he feels like makes the most sense to him. Fantastic director can make mediocre to bad movies. This isn't one of them. This movie's amazing. <laughs> I love Phenomena. Like, it's seriously, like, one of the first... I mean, what I I would have like I would have argued it was my favorite Argento movie for a long time. Mm-hmm. I still really like. Yeah. I don't know, like, the, like, and some things are ridiculous, but I don't care. Like, it doesn't bother me yeah. that there's ridiculous stuff because, again, like, I'm not watching yeah. fucking Citizen Kane. You know, like, I'm not sitting there watching mm-hmm. some classic of cinema. I'm watching a movie that is like really visually interesting to me for whatever the 97 minute running time or however long it is <clears throat> i i just think it's a shame that he's such he's such a brilliant director that i just think you missed the point yeah i don't i i think when you why don't you just i mean i guess maybe it, things like you know those outlets didn't exist back then but it's like shit create like three or four minute shorts then <laughs> Like, I mean, if, you, if, you, if it's just a scene that you want to film because you think it's cool and it's supposed to be visually appealing. Because just, his three to four minute shorts aren't going to get, like, marketed and right, yeah. distributed in the United States. and Right. So he crafts a shitty story around it. Right. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, is Friday the 13th Part 4, is that a great story? No. Come on. Like, there's tons of horror movies that have, like, terrible stories. I, again, I'll bring up... Jess Franco is a great example of a mm-hmm. guy who is... A brilliant visual director that has no concept of how to craft a narrative. But his movies are still, like, fun to watch because they're beautiful. Like, you're... It's not about... Like, sometimes a movie isn't about, like, the story you're being told. It's about the images you're being shown. And I think that Argento is amazing at that. Give me some negative negative criticism. Oh, it's stupid. Uh, It's... It's... It's a... I don't even want to read it. It's like embarrassing. It's like a Dave Kerr review mm. um, where it's just like the, the, the criticism is just 
in these insults through adjectives oh. type thing. And um, it's it's John Perilous from the New York Times, which this is the first time I've ever seen this guy's name um, ever in one of these things. And he What's obviously... Perilous? P-A-R-E-L-E-S? His uh, his column should have been called the Perilous View. <laughs> that would have been, been good. Um, he creaks along for the first hour or so, failing to work up any chills as the killer terrorizes a Swiss girls' school that has cuckoo clocks in every salon. It's like these kind of dumb details like Dave Kerthers in. Right. Jennifer Conley, as a teenage heroine, was apparently chosen because she can hold a fly on her hand without flinching. The plot toys with the idea that she can communicate with insects, allowing such special effects as a moving white dot that's supposed to be a firefly, then hauls out knives, chains, skulls, and maggots. The best acting is by an impressive, resourceful chimpanzee. <laughs> that's not wrong. <laughs> that's true. The chimpanzee's really good. Yeah. Um, is <clears throat> my favorite part of the entire movie. She emotes really well. Inga or whatever her name is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's, like, really tense when, um... She's like freaking out, like trying to get into Donald when she, Pleasance. When she's when watching she, yeah, him get murdered. Yeah. Uh huh. She's like ripping apart like the the like folding doors and stuff like that. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Like it's, it's really good. Um see it seems like that. Like that's very tense and very agreed. well filmed. That's and, what I'm telling you. So it's fine. Like that's I don't always have to come away thinking I've seen the greatest movie ever to enjoy a movie. I'm saying I don't think I have to see the greatest movie either. I think I have to see a movie. You saw a movie? Look, I explained the plot to you. Yeah. Um, okay, any final thoughts on this? I don't know. I mean, I guess now there's like some like debate as to whether or not people should watch it. Like, If you've watched any Argento and you enjoy it, like you'll enjoy Phenomena. And if you don't enjoy Argento, then you're not going to like it, I guess. I would say that, yeah, if you liked... If you like Suspiria, I think, then you should probably watch this and see right. what you think. Like, I mean, to um, me, they're neck and neck for like his most visually impressive movies. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we won't get into that. But yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think it's like as a horror fan. If you're a horror, if you're listening to this, you watched horror, and if you haven't seen this movie, then you probably just need to watch it because, I mean, it's well regarded by a lot of people like i just am not a fan of argento's narratives or stories whatsoever um a lot of italian directors i'm not i just don't right. like that aspect of them even if i think they're really good directors like <clears throat> and part of that might just be like like the blinders of nostalgia from the fact that i loved this shit when i was right yeah. you know 13 14 years old and i still can appreciate watching it now we have yeah. the same argument with the beyond honestly you know what i mean sure. it's like yeah it's, i feel uh, the it's, exact it's always, same yeah. way right um, are there any more Argento movies that are going to pop up on this? Opera, maybe. I haven't decided yet. Okay. I don't remember what year that is, but I really like opera a lot. Okay. All right. So number one on your list for this year uh, is Return of the Living Dead, directed by Dan O'Bannon, starring Clue Gulliger, uh, James Karen, and Don Koff. Kaffa. Um, it is a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 79% from audiences. You want to tell us about the plot of this movie? Because it does have a plot. It does. Um, and uh, what you like about it so much. a good narrative. Um, so these dudes are working in a medical warehouse. 
where they've gotten a shipment in of these containers. Um, the containers get broken open. Uh, basically, the shit inside causes the dead to reanimate. Um, and can like sort of like turn the living into the dead if they're exposed to it. Um, simultaneously, there's a group of like teenage punks like driving around the city. Um, as the dead start to spread, like they run afoul, um, they get locked in a, what, funeral home or they barricade themselves in a funeral home, like all the survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, basically, it's 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 a zombie apocalypse movie, but with like this sort of tongue in cheek, like almost like slapstick nature to it, um, and then like the punk undertones of you know these counterculture like kids who are trying to survive, like you know, and everybody trying to survive like the zombie apocalypse as it spreads, um. And ultimately, you know, in the end, like, the end result is that just everybody dies. Um, oh, and then the rain is, like, spreading it, like, further because, like, the, like, the poison is sucked up and then, like, spread throughout the rain. Um, because when they burn the bodies, like, the chemical gets, like, aerated, basically, and causes, like, all these, like, dead to come back out of, you know, to rise from their graves and... Um, amazing visual effects. Like I love the zombie special effects in this movie, um, particularly the tar man zombie that ends up, um, that's in the basement of the medical supply place. Um, one of my favorite like monster effects, I think in any horror movie from the eighties. Um, I love the tongue in cheek nature, like the inherent comedy of like errors basically of these people like consistently making the wrong decisions Mm -hmm. of what to do to try and save themselves um people continuously like piling into the area to try and like help and falling victim to the zombies and turning into zombies themselves um i know it's just it's it's a really fun movie um again like i think it's really well directed i think it's got some really like really cool I don't even know if tense, like, I don't know how tense it is, but like you, you want some of them to survive, you know, like you want them to be able to get away. And like, as you get through the movie and it's increasingly apparent that none of them are going to survive, um, you know, because eventually like they, they basically nuke, I guess it's Louisville, right? Kentucky is where place. Like they nuke it and like that area, they destroy it and just, like dismiss the reports that like the acid rain was like causing like right. the spread of this thing. Um, which is like also like a really nice, like post-apocalyptic almost like it's like, this is the beginning of the apocalypse because like, sure. again, like right. people making absolutely the wrong decisions as to like how to, how to deal with the spread of this, you know, this thing. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's fun. It's well-directed. Um, it's got some really good performances, I think, from, like, the majority of the principal actors. Um, it's got, like, just really great. So, like, you know, your complaint of, like, the set pieces, like, don't lead to anything in Phenomena. Like, in this, it's got a bunch of set pieces that just flow into each other and, like, build that, 
that feeling of like growing like hopelessness that you're not going to be able to escape this and that like everyone is going to die and um it's also like a good counterpoint and i hate to call it like almost like touching but you know the the kid that was working in the warehouse that gets infected like slowly Mm -hmm. turning into a zombie and his girlfriend and his friends like basically like unwilling to abandon him even though he's like showing that he's turning into the living dead right um yeah one of my like absolutely which is both sad but funny as it well. it is and that's, that's what i'm saying it's like, like once once you realize it's like basically rigor mortis is setting in right and it's like i i like like i you can't call it touching because it's not right like it's it's not like like it doesn't like pull at your heart straight no but because you're already invested in those characters right. like yeah the laughter is very like it's very like gallows humor in that respect yes. and it's really well done um i think o'bannon does a great job of pacing the movie mm-hmm. of like moving you seamlessly from like scene to scene and like bringing it to that culmination um and then like giving you that coda that you know they didn't actually solve anything they probably just made it worse right you know that leads in which is weird because like the second movie doesn't necessarily pick up from that thread and neither does the third movie really like they're all kind of their own thing but um i don't know i love it one of my favorite horror movies like ever yeah i thought i know you love this movie a lot i thought it was extraordinarily fun like watching it like it's it's kind of like one of those saturday afternoon horror movies yeah that you that you have a lot of fun watching and you walk away with a smile on your face despite how fucked up the movie is and the ending is you know and all that kind of stuff like it's just a really well told zombie movie um i think that they have there's no pandering with the characters i think the characters that are the principals are just likable right for different reasons i mean i think they're all their wholly unique characters like but but there's no pandering. They're just likable. Um, a lot of them through like their ingenuity. I think you just like come to appreciate the characters and sure. who they are, and you know, um, especially. And one of the interesting things is like up to this point, and even like past this point, the idea of like when you have a character that's a punk in a movie, it's usually a bad guy, right? Or it's usually somebody that's like an idiot or a miscreant at best and at worst they're like the violent you know i mean like there's plenty of horror movies that like we'll never talk about because they're not good Mm -hmm. where it's a quote-unquote punk that's like the leader of a gang that's like murdering people and dealing drugs and like having these these punks be the heroes of the movie basically is a pretty interesting take and pretty like refreshing that you know and again to your point like when they are when they show ingenuity and they show like mm-hmm. camaraderie and they show yeah. resilience like it's almost more yeah more interesting yeah i really love the the tension building as well of it feels like it's a lot of it's in real time it like, does like i it's not exactly real time but it's like you made a few tweaks to this movie you could imagine this is the first 93 minutes of the growing apocalypse of these zombies right. like and, I, you know in a way that's true though because the movie only takes place over i would say a f- few hours from like, like 11 p.m to maybe like 3 a.m right well right. no because so when the bomb is dropped it's the sun is rising the sun's rising okay so yeah. it's probably like six hours sure, of right, time yeah. total yeah yeah not, you're right like a third of that is actual screen time sure and, and 
I think like showing the people like the actors actually having to like quickly like grab things and put them in front of doors and those kind of things. I think like having that and like not like it's really subtle things that the movie does that I think works really well. So it's like when they have to move like a big like uh, like dresser drawer or something. Right. They don't show them like starting to move it and then cut and suddenly it's like five feet over in front of the door he actually films it in long shots so it's like you see them struggling to move it and put it in front of the door so it's like i think it creates this like subtle sympathy with the characters and again like you know respecting like because you know what it's like to sit there and try to move something that large even two people that quickly too especially and try to like you know and it's i just think it like makes you connect with them more and um you know well in a lot of ways it's i mean it's completely different from night of the living dead but there's a lot of homage to night of the living dead there like especially you know the the tense argument like do we barricade ourselves and make a stand or do we try and go into the attic or yeah. Are we going to make a break for, you know, I mean, that police cruiser's right there. Right. You know, and in Night of the Living Dead, like, it's all very methodical and very slow. And it's much more of an examination of, like, the tension of the human element of being a survivor. Whereas in this, it's much more, like, frantic and yeah. slapstick in a lot of ways. And, like, to your point, you're right. Like, there's, but yeah. it's very physical the right. way that he films, like, this movie and the way he films the actors and yeah like even like when they're going down the stairs and the one guy like falls through the step you know like all that stuff there's like a lot of physicality to this movie that's more i don't know like it it lends like a like a real kinetic energy to the film that like agree is carried throughout the entire film Mm -hmm. and keeps you invested and makes it fun to watch it makes it like really i mean he's not making you know i mean it makes the same like overarching like idealistic statements that every apocalyptic zombie movie makes but i mean he's not beating you over the head with it he's just trying to entertain you for an hour and a half and he does a really good job of that agreed so this was the movie i was thinking of toby hooper was initially supposed to direct this um and then he leaves to go make life Life force and that's when o'bannon who writes it steps in so you know what's funny is o'bannon like co-wrote life force too Right, right, yeah. Which is, O'Bannon co-wrote a lot of really great movies and wrote, like, um, he's partially responsible for Alien, Mm -hmm. uh, Life Force, this, um... I can't remember what, yeah, there's a couple others. There's a bunch of other stuff that O'Bannon did. Yeah, right. Um, I think he was more, he was more notable as, like, a comic book creator and, like, a novelist, I think. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of, like, writing. Right. Um, but for, like, you know, like, directing, like, he does an amazing job. Sure, It's It's a... I mean, it's not, like brilliant like cinematography sure. but it's definitely competently directed it is and i think you like you said i think he makes a lot of really good choices to kind of keep that action moving and make you know there's little subtle choices whether it's by design or not like or just instinct whatever it was like i think he does a really good job with it for especially for stepping into a director's yeah. chair pretty quickly i think and there's some really like small moments in this movie that are just great like when they're when um the guy that owns the warehouse and his his associate his employees like bring the chopped up body over and they're like we need your help like we 
we we got burnt spotty right and then it becomes like this why i don't i don't know if i want to do that like and they have these like the dialogue exchange and it's just really really naturalistic and really well done and i don't know like i yeah so this was the first i read in the first uh zombie movie where the idea of eating brains Yes. Was where it's specifically the brain that's the right the target of the zombie, which, yeah. is, which is crazy. Like because I would have thought that was well. This is the movie much, so that, much sooner. Like whenever you hear someone like do like the brain, sure, thing, yeah, that's this brain, right? Yeah, 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 of this movie that that exists. Sure. Yeah, I just would have thought it was sooner that because it's like I grew up thinking that zombies ate brains. I well, never yeah. realized that it was developed at some point when I was a child. Right, so the zombie before this was, I mean, before Night of the Living Dead, the zombie is like a traditional like voodoo zombie. Sure. And its ghouls are more like the flesh-eating like like, like crypt dwellers or whatever. Right. But they're cannibals. You know, mm-hmm. they're not, like it's, it's like very specifically they're going for the brains and that's what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a pretty brilliant, like, like, I don't know. It's it makes it definitely makes it stand out from the other zombie movies, and it's why, like, even though I've kind of grown tired of the zombie genre over the past mm-hmm. like twenty years of nothing yeah. but zombies, um, like I'll always love this movie. I'll always find it to be like really one of my favorite movies as a kid, and just so much fun. Like every time I watch it, yeah. when you first brought up the idea of us doing like this, like the by decade. This was the first movie I thought of, and I couldn't wait to get to 1985 to talk about yeah. Return of the Living Dead. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if the sequels ever show up on these lists. I don't know. Yeah. I, I really like the second one a lot. Right. But he's also not involved, I don't think, in any of the other ones. So, Bannon. Yeah. Like, it's one of those things, like, where Craven, like, sort of, like, invented the Nightmare on Elm Street, and then it's just, like, completely removed yeah. from the process. Well, there's some... Uh, there's a battle, isn't there, over this? Because the person who... Who doesn't somebody does somebody co-write Night of the Living Dead with Romero? Oh, what is that guy's name? You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, it's well, um, this was based off of him writing a story. And then O'Bannon came in and like changed a bunch of it. And then he directed it and it looked different from that guy's like thing or, or something. And then he wanted made Is there another Return of the Living Dead? There's Return of the Living Dead too. There's not another one that's named Return of the Living Dead? Or is there something like that's like just the Living Dead? Because somehow that guy from the original ended up having the phrase Living Dead and he owned it. That guy that worked with Romero. And then he creates another Living Dead movie like a couple years after. So I guess Ricci, I guess, is his name, I think. I'm really trying. I, I used to be like. Super knowledgeable about it. it's like Rudy Ricci, I think is the name of the guy mm-hmm. that's the wrote Night of the Living Dead with Romero and started late in image like pictures. So yeah, I mean I yeah he's I um know. you know who it is? It's the uh the dad in Night of the Living Dead is that guy. I think. Mm. Like I think he plays okay. that character. I don't know about another franchise that has that title. Yeah. I I I should have probably Or Russo maybe? Russo, that's John him. Russo. Yep. Yeah, John. Yep, that's him. Yeah. Um. 
Yeah, I can't I can't remember it off the top of my head now. But yeah, apparently there was another um there's another one that was created that used like the Living Dead name in some way. But um So any final thoughts on this whatsoever? Um No, I mean like to me this is like the quintessential like eighties horror movie. You know, it's got yeah. the perfect combination of black humor like morbid humor um good gross out special effects um decent character development you know good set pieces and it's just like super entertaining to watch from start to finish john russo yeah Yeah. he went on to do other stuff within that universe i know but i don't i don't know if i care about any of it there's a movie called flesh eater that came out in like maybe it's next the next year like 86 or 87 mm-hmm. that maybe he was involved in mm. that's filmed in the same area of pennsylvania and has um uh one of the one of the guys that played um the main zombies in it is like the titular like flesh eater zombie character mm-hmm. in it and it's filmed, I think, in the same township that Night of the Living Dead was mm. filmed in. Maybe it had something to do with that. Right. I've seen that movie a couple times. I own it on DVD. It was like one of those Rhino, like, or right. Shock Factory, like, three packs or whatever. Right. Um, man, I don't know. I used to be, like, such a historian on this shit. And, like, it's all gone out of my head now. Right. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, it happens. Anyway, so, yeah, it's, it's a really good movie. Like, it's free to watch on Tubi, I think, now, right? And definitely works worth. No, it's um. Oh yes, it is. But it's also if you're a Prime subscriber, it's on Prime. Okay. So, yeah. Well, probably better to watch on Prime than if you can without yeah. the commercials. But um. Right. Definitely worth like you know the hour and a half of your time to sit down and watch. Right. Yeah. Okay. There's actually maybe like oh. two or three other movies in the '80s that horror movies that I like more than this movie. Oh, I did have a question I want to ask you about this because the uh, the criticism and stuff like that was. I went to audiences because right and is it about the nudity? No, uh, one one critique was it was too long to start and suddenly over way too fast, um, from an audience member. Yeah, um, but this person also viewed it as a parody, and I that that's incorrect, right? Yeah, it's not a parody of anything. Uh, okay, why would somebody think it's a parody? Because they yeah. don't understand what a parody is, I guess. <laughs> um i don't know i don't know any other reason yeah it's 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 a are they mistaking some of the humor as parody then yeah i mean i I guess they're saying that because there's i mean it's it's got some slapstick comedy in it sure but it's always framed against like the morbid horror of like the dead returning to eat your brain sure right yeah parody is like scary movie right this is a scary movie because this movie within its own reality takes itself very seriously like the threat is serious the death is serious you know it's 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 a black comedy homage to the living dead films that was like written by a guy that was involved i guess you know if russo was involved in the story mm-hmm. like that's one of the guys that came up with the main story of night of the living dead and yeah parody that's just dumb yeah Sorry for whoever that is on Rotten Tomatoes. I won't, not, I won't say his name. You're not, you're not, you're not right. 
Okay. Um, all right. So that's the list for the week. Next week, we will be back with um, our friend Orion Wellmaker. We will be doing something we haven't done before, which is a watch along to uh, The Big Sleep, the uh, Bogart movie, where he plays uh, Philip Marlowe. And we will be, I guess, Orion, um, one of our other friends, Eric Dixon, has a drinking game that they developed years ago to The Big Sleep. And we are going to be playing uh, that drinking game while watching The Big Sleep. So um, we have that coming the following month in July. The first week we will be doing the top five summer movies of all time. Uh, then we will have uh, Jason Heaster uh, returning to the podcast for a third man series. And then finally we will wrap up the month with the top B horror movies of 1986. So that's our schedule. Remember, if you like what you hear, please uh, like us on Facebook. Um, please, you know, uh, subscribe and uh, leave reviews. Reviews are important for getting us more attention. Shares on Facebook are important for getting us more attention. We appreciate any help that you give us in that way. Um, and if you have any list ideas of your own, you can contact us through Facebook or you can contact us through any of your whatever your podcatcher app is. Uh, we'll get those messages, and um, you can also contact us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com uh, as well. So thank you very much for listening, and have a great weekend. Yep, have a good night.